good evening. Welcome to our last Wednesday night meeting of 2018. So tonight, as we're wrapping up our Wednesday nights and, and seeing them come to an end for this season, we're also going to be wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes. We're also going to be saying uh, goodbye to one of the characters we've been studying for some time now. We, we still have the, the book, The Song of Solomon, to cover, but that's covered at the beginning of Solomon's life. And so what we see here in the book of Ecclesiastes is the close of not only uh, this book, but we see the end of the writings of King Solomon. And so with that in mind, with that as the, the backdrop, I just wanted to quickly uh, relay and, and go over the conclusions of this king. Because in this study of Ecclesiastes, we've had the opportunity to really look inside the mind of Solomon and get to see inside where he's at from a mental state. But from an exterior standpoint, I wanted to just quickly go over the good that took place in the life of Solomon. For one, we saw they've seen this nation of Israel, seen this, whoa, look out. That's all right, Linda. You're doing a tremendous job of redecorating the <laughs> stage. That's unbelievable. Well, you couldn't see me because I'm so slender. I was hidden behind that like this. I'll turn for you like that so you can see me. So they've seen a tremendous increase of wealth as a nation. And in fact, in 1 Kings 10, 21, what we'd read there is Solomon not only drank out of cups of gold, but they were pure gold. And it says there that, uh, that silver at that time was accounted as nothing. So there was so much wealth that even silver was thought of as just nothing, just cast it off. It's not worth anything. There's so much gold. So we see an incredible wealth that's taken place for the nation of Israel. Economic times are good. They've had 40 years of a peaceful reign. In fact, Solomon's name means peace. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't conquer more territory and didn't expand more territory, but he didn't have to fight the battles that his father David fought against the Philistines as they saw their, their borders being attacked. So for Solomon, it was, it was a time of, of physical growth of the nation as well. And then we can look and see the governmental order as he put governors into place to govern over all these territories. He had 12 governors in place, and this was, this was new to this part of the world, right? They're seeing this incredible structure that he created within the nation of Israel. And then, of course, construction projects, my favorite, right? We see the construction, most notably, of the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see the temple there, a picture of it on the left, as he dedicates this temple project. So unbelievable achievements took place during the reign of King Solomon. Now then, we also, on the flip side, have the not-so-good. As we look at, at what took place in his personal life, and, and first of all, he multiplied horses. All three of these things uh, he did against God's will, multiplying horses, multiplying wealth, and multiplying wives. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, as God says, listen, the way I intended this to be as a nation is for you to be a theocracy, you to be ruled by God, you to be directed by God. But at the point in time when you decide that's not good enough, we want to be like all the other nations around, we want to have a king, and you set a king over you, here's three things for him not to do. He should not uh, gather chariots, horses, which are a sign of power. He shouldn't multiply wealth, and he should not multiply wives, lest they lead him astray. Solomon went O for three. All three of these things he failed on. And so because of this, we see this, this tremendous dichotomy of this human being, right? We see this guy on the outside, that from the outside perspective, man, he's got it going on. If this is a, one of your politicians, yesterday you would have voted for this guy, right? They got it going on. 
But internally, and this is what's so unique about this book, we get to see what's going on inside the mind of the man as this is taking place. So then, big picture as a takeaway, as we kind of look at this 30,000-foot view of Solomon, what we can take away from our studies is, to begin with, God values wisdom, right? So the wisdom that Solomon talks about that's vapor of vanity in fact, this is a gift from God, and we know as we read through the Bible that all good gifts come from the Father of lights. He's not a giver of bad gifts. This is a gift that Solomon prayed for, asked for, and was given. It's a good thing. In fact, uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. So wisdom and understanding are good things for us to want to gain. But secondly, what we see as we study his life is that sin is seductive, right? There is a real allure to sin. And in Solomon's life, uh, he failed in this area. And so for you or I to look at the power that sin has, whether it's what we, what we enjoy uh, physically, what we look at, what we allow into our bodies, that it's not, it doesn't appear on the outside to begin with bad, right? So from even Satan's standpoint, he was, in fact, a this beautiful angel, Lucifer, the angel of light, right? He's not a, an evil guy with a pitchfork and, and a pointy tail. It looks good on the outside. So for us, if the wisest man who ever lived wasn't smart enough to run away from sin, why do we think we can be, right? We've got to run away from it. If the smartest man wasn't uh, wise enough to stay away from it, it tells us the danger that lurks. But thirdly and last, our takeaway can be God is bigger than all of this. So if even in the life of Solomon, we can look at this, this damaged guy, that if we can learn from his life, and you can even see the good that comes out of this, and the good that comes out of this learning, it, it tells you that God is bigger than all of these things, <laughs> that Jesus can, in fact, conquer all of this stuff. And so what we, uh, what we, could, le- what we could stop with is the title to the message, which really you're going to see in verse 13. Solomon is saying, uh, in the words of the great, poet, Forrest Gump. That's about all I had to say about that. That That's the best Forrest Gump impression I had. All right, let's begin then in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words And what was written was upright words of truth. So to begin with, it is that in spite of Solomon's personal struggles, he didn't stop from teaching. That this ministry that he had going on, he didn't uh, put on the sidelines just because he had struggles. That in in fact, what he says is he, he still taught the people knowledge. He pondered and sought things out, right? And he continues in explaining his preparation that he was searching acceptable words and words that were true. And so the question I put up there to start with is, are you hurt or are you injured? I don't know if you've ever heard a football coach say this before, but this was my coach. Are you hurt or are you injured? Because if you're injured, you can't play. But if you're hurt, suck it up, baby. Get back out there. So for me, as a a young guy, uh, sophomore in high school, I was the backup fullback on varsity until two weeks before the season, when the starting fullback's dad got transferred, he worked for Marathon, he got transferred to Finley, Ohio. So I get the phone call that, hey, guess what, 15-year-old, you are now the starting fullback. And I was nervous, to say the very least. 
But as the season went on, uh, I kind of grew into the role, and, and uh, it, it, was, it was enjoyable. I loved football. But one particular game, we're playing the cross-county rivals, the Marshall Lions. Better dead than red. We hate those guys. But I, I caught a pass out in the flat on this particular play, and I turned to go in for a touchdown. And just as I'm going across the goal line, I put my head down to run over the guy that's, uh, that's defending me, and he catches me right on the bicep with his helmet. A direct shot right there. Now, I scored a touchdown, but, boy, my whole arm was like on fire. I couldn't feel my fingers. I couldn't move my hand for a little while. But, of course, uh, I'm not injured. I'm just hurt. So I'm going to continue to play the game. No big deal, right? Score a touchdown. I'm a hero. Feeling pretty good. That's on Friday night. And then comes Sunday evening. Now, at this point in time, Sunday, my arm had swollen from my shoulder all the way down to my wrist. And the scarier part for a 15-year-old is when I went to grab a glass of water, I didn't have enough strength in my hand to even be able to hold it. It fell right through my hand. So I knew at that point uh, I had a problem. I, I talked to Coach then on Monday, and he asked me this question. Are you hurt or are you injured? Well, of course, what am I going to say? I'm, I'm loving getting to play on varsity. I'm just, I'm just hurt, Coach. So I spend the entire next week in physical therapy, and uh, they work on a calcium deposit that had formed on the outside of my arm. And what we did is he, uh, Coach, being the, the brain surgeon he was, he wrapped my arm like this, because if you're going to carry the football, you want to have your arm bent about like that. He wrapped it all the way up from one end to the other, and I played like that. And the last two games of the season, that's the way I played. Now, that sounds ludicrous, right? Unless you love football. Now, I loved the lights. I loved the, you know, thousand people cheering. That was awesome. But I would have done it in practice. I would have done it out in the backyard. I loved football. And so the point here uh, for us as we're talking about this is, do you love Jesus like that? Because if you're in any kind of ministry, if you're in any kind of service work for the Lord, you are at some point in time going to be hurt. Are you injured? Can you not play? Or are you hurt? Can you play through that? Because if you're looking for this perfect season, for everything to line up just right, where, hey, I'm, I'm doing great, I'm only going to serve when I'm doing great, you're probably not going to serve at all in reality. So for me, uh, I, I love football enough to do that. So I have to ask myself this question, do I love Jesus enough to do that? Now, Satan, on the other hand, what he wants to do in Revelation 12.10, what we read about him is he is an accuser. And in fact, what uh, the Apostle John writes here is, And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Satan is an accuser, and what he will do is take our hurt and take our pain and whisper into our ear, you're not good enough. You're not doing a good enough job. Look at all what you've got going on. You're too hurt to participate. And if we listen to that, we're going to take ourselves out of the game completely. But what God tells us right here is he's already lost. He has been cast down. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, Right? So we have to recall these things back because um, the fact of the matter is if you're hurt and you're ministering to people that are hurt, it's very possible that the very hurt you have going on is just the right hurt that someone else needs as you're ministering to them. 
you can relate. You have relatability, right? So uh, to conclude with this section, that in verse 10, what we see is that in spite of Solomon's depraved state, in spite of his mind and where he's at, we see him continuing to search the truth, right? In verse 10, he says, And the preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. He continued to seek this thing, and that is truth. And if you've been here any length of time in studies, you've probably heard this phrase, is that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. And so as we search for truth, we want to search for truth with the right mixture of love, especially when it comes to speaking into other people's lives. Now, Jesus was an expert at this, as he was at many things. And if you look with me in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 29, this is a story that's familiar to many of you. It's it's, uh, a story as he's relating to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But what he proceeds to do is share with her truths about her life. But he does it in such a way that this is her response. As he's sitting there talking to her, and he says, uh, go back and tell your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus' response is, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five, and the guy you're living with, he ain't your husband. That's my translation. And in her response to this truth, which would seem to be damaging, is, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Come see this man. She goes out proclaiming, come see this man who told me all the things I ever did. Now, to me, on the surface level, that seems awful. Like, I don't want to meet a guy that's told me all the things I've ever did. But that tells you the way Jesus related to people in a way that mixed truth and love. He didn't come across with his fist, you know, wielding over the top of her. In fact, he still offered her living water in spite of this. Right? He's offering her the chance of life in spite of all of her hurt and all of her damage. And then in verse 42 of this same section, And the woman said, and then they, the people that she went to speak to, said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that indeed the Christ, he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. So a, a powerful testimony doesn't point people back to the person giving the testimony, but in fact it points people back to Jesus. So if you've been here with us these last few Wednesday night uh, testimony on, on prayer nights, let me tell you, it is some of the most powerful stuff. And the reason isn't because of the people that are sitting up here. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the release. That's what actually gets released. It's the Holy Spirit that, that releases. It's when truth is shared, there's nothing the enemy can say. There's nothing he can accuse you of if you're up here saying what you've already done to begin with, right? It's this unbelievable unveiling is really what's taking place. So this is the encouragement we get to keep on keeping on. Now then, moving on in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes, let's pick up in verse 11. And we see here in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. The words of the scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. So to begin with, at the start of verse 11, what he says is the wise are like goads prodding us along. So a goad was actually a, a sharp stick, almost like a spear. I put a picture of a goad. I hope that's accurate. Google says that's accurate, so it's got to be right. That's what a goad looks like. 
So here's a goad, and what it's used for is the people driving the oxen can actually uh, use that to help direct them, and as they kick back, when they, when they refuse to go the way they're supposed to go, they would kick their heel right into this sharp, pointy stick. Has anybody ever felt like that? I'm refusing to go the way the shepherd wants me to go. I'm going to kick back, and then, ouch, that hurts a little bit. This is a similar uh, saying, is, is the Apostle Paul is being called, at this time, Saul of Tarsus, he's on the road to Damascus. He meets the risen Jesus Christ. The light blinds him. And what's Jesus say to him? He says, Saul, why hasn't it been hard as you've kicked against the goads? Hasn't it been difficult for you as you've kicked against the goads? You've kicked back as I've tried to direct you, which tells you that Paul's probably been getting direction from the Lord in his heart for some time. And it's been painful. And if you meet anybody that's been called in their life and they are kicking against the goads, let me tell you, you will find one miserable, miserable person. I spent uh, years, probably in reality, entire decades in my life kicking against the goads, and I was one miserable guy. So this is what we're encouraged to do, that the, that the goads are actually used to prod us in the right direction. And then this next section, we see in the words are... And scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. What it's saying here is these well-driven nails are actually the same word that's used for tent stakes. So the question here is, what have your tent stakes been fastened to? Where are you driving your tent stakes? Now, when we were first coming to Parkland Chapel, uh, I was uh, really going through a lot of changes in my life. God was doing a lot of things. He was you know, shaking some stuff off and, and doing a work. But one of the things I was excited about is we had a Saturday morning men's Bible study, a man-up Bible study that met uh, down here, what was the second building before they were joined together. And we had a project that was going to happen this uh, coming Saturday. And it was going to be putting the tent up out there over the top of the pad. Now, this is a chance for me to get a work with some men, some guys I'm just getting to know. And if you ever work with guys, that's really a good chance to get to know them because it's a, it's a chance to mouth each other when you can't swing a, a hammer and hit a giant stake. That's a chance for you to, to laugh at one another and, and really get to know each other. And so uh, this, is, this is my first time being around these guys. And we, and we get out there, and we're, we're unveiling the, the tent, and it's got a few you know, tears in it, and we're patching the tears and, and you know, sewing things back together. And then it's time to stand the poles, right? So we Men get around the tent, and we're, we're beginning to stand the poles over the concrete pad when all at once a, a wind, a gust, I'll call it a tempest, Satan sends a tempest our direction, and it blows this tent up under it, and the tent poles start to fly, and this thing is flapping. It's like Barnum and Bailey's worst nightmare. And so here's me standing on a corner holding a tent pole, all 130 pounds of me, Okay, 150 pounds. Okay, there's, there's 200 pounds of me. All right, holding, holding onto my post, and I don't want to let this thing go because it's, it's going to fly off and hurt somebody. And I look, and the guy off to my left, he'd slipped, and the post had actually flown out of his hand. And now the wind is whipping this thing up and down, and he's laying on the ground, and it's beating him like he's in a WWF, like, like the rock getting beaten over the head with a metal chair. And there was nothing I could do. If I, if I leave my post, literally leave my post, the whole thing's going to go. So quickly someone runs over and gets him out from being beaten to death by a tent pole. 
And this is my first interaction with the men at Parkland Chapel. Now, that either says a lot about me, probably, or it says a lot about the, the teaching that was going on. But the point is, if you're going to fasten your tent posts down and your stakes down, they have to be fastened to something secure because if they don't, it can not only hurt you and the other people in your tent, it can hurt people on the outside of your tent. Lots of people can get injured from flying tent poles. Which, on a side note, by the way, we're going to have a sign-up next week for this spring for tent pole holders. If anybody's interested, I'm just kidding. There's some women actually out there looking, going, I'd like to sign my husband up as a tent pole holder. He could use a good beating, you know, leaving his underwear on the floor. So we're not really doing that. But the question is, what is your tent stake fastened to? Is it fastened into a firm foundation? Is it fastened into the Word of God, right? And then if it's fastened there, are you directed by the shepherd? And notice with me in the text, that shepherd with a capital S, right? So really what we're talking about, is it fastened in the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the spot it needs to be in order for us to have a firm place to keep our tent held down, even if a tempest comes along and begins to blow things around. Now then lastly, and further my son be admonished by these of the making of books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Boy, anybody that's set through some of these college courses, I have to tell you, I got more sleep in Astronomy 101, the stars and you, as they turned those lights down and the air conditioning was on. I think I'm the only guy in the history of college to get an A in astrophysics and a C in Astronomy 101, the stars and you. I never saw uh, any of it. I don't think I w- even was awake for one minute of the class. But you'd understand this, that, that much study is wearisome, right? So I looked up on Google, and it says uh, there, it's got to be right again. There are reportedly a 130 million books currently in print today, with an additional 1 million being printed each year. So if you've got this goal of reading everything that's out there, and, you, and they stop printing books today, and you read one book a day, it would take you 356,000 years to read every book that's out there. That's wearisome just thinking about, right? So the question here is, what books are we reading? What are we taking in? And does it begin with the book, right? That's the book really to start with. This is the book of life. This is the spot. Now, other books are great, and they help us support, but this is the place to start. All right, let's wrap up. As Solomon says, that's all I had to say about that. In verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now doesn't that sound simple, right? All we need to do is fear God and keep His commandments. I should be able to shut this and we leave tonight knowing that's, that's it, right? It's easy. But it's not easy. (laughs) If that was it, we could. But the problem is, I can't do it. The fearing God part is one thing. Fear, reverence, love, respect. I can love God and have reverence for Him. The problem is keeping His commandments. That's where the issue comes in. I can't do it. You can't do it. We can't do it. This is the point where we come to the, the crossroads. And then... 
as I continue to study the Word and I look at what Jesus writes in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 20, He says here, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's terrifying, right? So if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and keeping in mind, he's not railing on the scribes and the Pharisees in this verse. He's actually applauding them. They are the spiritual elite. They're as good as it gets in the nation of Israel. They're as good as it gets at, at following the law. So think of the most religious straight down the line, clean-cut person you can think of. And unless your righteousness exceeds that person, you do not have a place in the kingdom of heaven. That's terrifying, especially in light of verse 14. I'm going to have to stand in judgment for everything? Everything? I don't know about you. As, as I look at that, I'm, I'm bummed out, Right? I already can't keep his commandments to begin with, but then my righteousness has to exceed this, and, and I, I can pretty quickly get to a dark place. Because as I look at my life, I see, a lot of, I see a lot of flaws in the game. I see a lot of disease, in fact. I even see some spiritual leprosy I got hanging on. Right? Some things that just, it's just rotten on me. Now, about the time I'm pretty bummed out as I'm studying this, I flip to the right just a little bit in Matthew chapter 8 and read this, picking up in verse 2. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now there is a highlight, right? So this past week, actually on Monday, Angela and I closed on our old house. And it's rare that she and I are both in the same vehicle at the same time. And we are uh, riding together on the way to the bank, and she gets a phone call. And the phone call is from a young lady that we've been praying uh, for and about for quite a while and, and really to, to no avail. So sometimes we did really good praying and other times we struggled praying and other times we just didn't pray at all. But this young lady calls her and says, hey, I wanted to let you know that I went to church this last weekend. Wow, praise the Lord. And, and you won't believe it was even a Calvary Chapel. Wow, that's great. And they were in the Book of Romans. Are all you Calvary Chapels in the Book of Romans? Like, No, we're not all in the Book of Romans, but it just happens to be that it worked out that way. And she, and she proceeded to, to talk about this, the fact that the fourth chapter of the book of Romans talks all about Abraham and, and didn't understand why Abraham would be in that section, but it was about the faith of Abraham. And, and she said, this is, this is something I'm, I'm, not, I'm not grasping. So we had a few minutes, we got to talk to her about Abraham's faith and, and moreover, not just his faith, but his lack of faith a lot of times. Like, there, there's more sections where Abraham lacked faith in his life than where he actually had this tremendous faith. And until at the end of his life, we see him actually growing so much in his faith that he becomes the father of the faith, right? So as we're talking to her about this, she says, so, so you mean to tell me that with just that little bit of faith that God could use him like that? Yeah, just that little bit of faith, God could use him like that. 
And then the next thing she asked uh, really touched both of us. She said, well, if God could use Abraham and his little bit of faith, you think he could even use me? I mean, I, I've done a lot of wrong, and I've, I've walked away, and, and I've stepped away, but, but I, I still believe in him. You think with that being said, he could even use me? Even me? Yeah. Yeah. He could even use you. Even you. So at this point, we've got to walk into the bank to close. Poor Angela, who rarely gets to put makeup on. I was trying not to cry as the makeup's getting ready to run. And I'm trying not to cry because I'm a man. I'm not going to cry. Come on. We probably walked in there and they thought, oh my gosh, these people sold their house because they're getting divorced. <laughs> like we both got out of the car crying. Oh no, what just took place? But in light of that, understand what Jesus is saying here is, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That little bit of faith that this leper had is all that I need. That little bit of faith that if you're willing, you can make me clean. All the onus is put back on Christ. Thank the Lord. It's all put back on Him, and none of it's on me. Because if it's relying on me, it's going to fail. And in fact, what He says there is, I am willing be cleansed. That's all the harder this has to be. That's all the more difficult this has to be. So if you're in here tonight, and you've not been to this place where you've, you've said that, but you're feeling this way. You're feeling like you're diseased. You've got stuff falling off of you. Let me encourage you. You don't want to stand in judgment. I don't want to stand in judgment with my arm falling off and legs rotting off. I, I, let alone coming up to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm worried I'm going to have a body part fall off as I'm standing in front of the Lord. There's so much disease here. If you're in that spot, don't leave here without making a decision. Don't leave here without asking this very simple question. Lord, if you're willing, can you cleanse me, even me? Or if you're in a spot tonight where, where you've said that, but instead you're in a place where maybe you stepped away. Maybe there's things you're still hanging on to. you still got some rotten pieces, and you think there's no way God's going to be able to use this thing that I got going on because it's nasty. From what I can tell, Looking at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I'll read that again. But to him who does not work, not what I can do, but believes on him, capital H, who justifies the ungodly, that's me, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Thank the Lord when we are at that point on that day, I can stand there not worrying about how good of a job I did, but I can stand there knowing that Jesus is the one that justified me just as if it never happened. And he's the righteous one, not me. It's a beautiful thing. It's the part that Solomon missed throughout the book. And so today, tonight as we close, ask this, just ask this. If you are willing, can you cleanse me? Because his answer is going to be, I put it up there on the screen, 
I am willing, be cleansed. So thank you, Lord, um, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the writings of Solomon. Thank you for all of his thousands of Proverbs and his thousands of wives to go with his thousands of Proverbs and all the things we get to learn from a guy that uh, he was tore up from the floor up for sure. But Lord, so are we. And thank you, Father, that um, while Solomon was searching everywhere under the sun, he forgot to look in the sun. S-O-N. Thank you so much for the Son who can stand there as our righteousness. I praise you for that, Father. And thank you for all these things that we can learn from your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.